Well, hello. How's everybody doing this weekend? It is great to be with you all. I have been, as you know, uh, not here physically present all these last weeks. Sometimes I was sitting there taking notes, but um, I've been different places teaching and encouraging the church around the world. And man, has it ever been encouraging to see what is happening around the world. I mean, I, I, I have personally seen the way God's at work on the other side where the water swirls differently down the drain uh, in Australia and where they drive on the wrong side of the road and have signs that can be confusing to Americans. Uh, I know you've been praying for me or I would not be here. I wouldn't be alive uh, because uh, you drive on the other side of the road there, which is not that big a deal until you come to an intersection and you find out you better not do a left, right, left, but it turns into very quickly right, left, right, or you won't be all right for very long. I uh, almost tested that reality. But we are in the middle of a, a great series. I'm excited to be with you today. And we're calling the series The Seven, and we're talking about seven essentials. Now, what I want to do is tie in, as we start today, a little bit back to what my friend Blake did last week when he did an amazing job making sure that we understood what the gospel once and for all delivered to the saints was. It even kind of went with the last series we did, uh, if you've been tracking with us. Some of you guys just jump in and watch just this message alone online. You ought to go back and watch a series we did called The Outsiders. And it ended with the way Jesus' incredible love all the way to the end of a criminal's life as he shared essential truth about who he was, or at least the man next to him had essential understanding about who Jesus was as he hung on a cross. Last week, Blake showed you a chart, and the chart looked like this. It had um, essentials, and next to that there was convictions and then opinions and questions. And last week, we were differentiating between essentials and convictions by talking about what it takes for the thief on the cross, what it takes for your waiter or waitress, your neighbor, your father, your mother, the person you love in the proverbial deathbed, for them to embrace and know as absolutely true for them to be saved. That's what we used last week when we talked about the word essentials. Let me just give it to you this way. When Peter got done preaching, the very first message ever when uh, the Spirit of God came upon the church and they were his witnesses. He got done preaching and the, and the world looked at him and uh, they said, what then must we do in light of what you just shared with us about who Jesus was? And Peter said to them this, repent. You have to turn from your self-dependent ways. You've got to leave the dead religion and the understanding that you could earn God's favor by anything other than God's demonstration of love for you in that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. He said, repent. And he goes on to say, and each of you be baptized, which is so interesting because some people think it's essential that you're baptized to be saved. And I'll make it clear to you that that's not at all, as we go through the series, that's not at all what you have to do. Baptism is an outworking of an inner faith. But you do need to turn your mind around. You need to repent it is essential that you identify with the name of Jesus as the means of the forgiveness for your sin. And you ought to be baptized. You ought to go ahead and declare that through an outward demonstration. But that is how we use the word essential last week. Now, a little bit later, Paul, when he was um, writing to the church in Rome, he talked again about that essential of what it means to be saved. 
Okay, um, when he was talking to the Romans, he said in Romans 10, 8, uh, the word of God is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart, when he was um, quoting some Old Testament scripture. And he said, that is the word of faith that we are preaching. Specifically, this is the essential, this is so important. If you're here as a guest, I want you to hear me say this. This is what is essentially what will make you reconciled to God, what will allow you to be called a child of God that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. When you do that, you will be saved. It doesn't mean you've got a correct pneumatology, a correct bibliology, that your eschatology is all squared away, that you have a correct anthropology, that your view of when life begins is all hammered out consistent with scripture. It doesn't mean that you understand uh, right then at that moment forever about uh, binary gender and you have that locked down, that all your uh, sins and struggles have been dealt with and that your mind doesn't still need to be transformed. No, the one thing that's changed is that you know now that God is good and that he's revealed his goodness through Jesus Christ. It's why when I'm sharing my faith with people, I don't want to get into secondary issues with them. Secondary issues that have primary effect on the joy and the beauty of the life that individuals live, but I'm not going to talk about whether or not you need to move out from living with your girlfriend, about whether or not if you're a girl, you can have a girlfriend that you marry. I want to talk to you about the faith. I want to talk to you about Jesus, where God's demonstrated his love for you. Now, let me just finish what Paul said to the Romans. He says, you've got to understand, you've got to agree with God that Jesus is Lord. He is God, the creator of heavens and earth. And you've got to believe in your heart that God affirmed that he was that with power through the resurrection. Because he says in verse 10, for the heart a man believes, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. You have Christ's righteousness put on you when you ask God for mercy. And with a mouth you confess that I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, and then he experiences saved, salvation. It's why, if you really wanna understand this, the way we talked about it last week, you need to put a bold red line right here, that this is what essentially you need to believe is true. Now, I'm gonna say one more thing. It doesn't mean you believe those facts. It doesn't mean that you just say, hey, I, I, I'm going to hold to these truths in a true-false sense. It means that you put your trust in Jesus. It means that you begin to follow him. Why? Because in James chapter 2, verse 19, if you want to know anybody who, who has an absolutely correct understanding of the essentials about who Jesus is, it's demons. James 2.19 says this, you believe that God is one? You believe that God's revealed himself through the son who was resurrected? That's awesome, you're doing well. But the demons also believe that and they shudder in their belief because they know that that means that they are going to be judged because even though they know that Jesus is God and they know that God is holy, they choose not to follow him. They believe facts, they don't believe in the way the Bible talks about faith. Let me make something very clear. Last week, we talked about what is essential, in effect, for you to be believed, and we separated that from what we called convictions, 
opinions and questions. When you get a little further, and what we're doing now in the series is we're gonna talk about essential convictions that we hold to because we do believe that God is good and has revealed himself in his son. And we do believe that he's revealed himself in the word. And we do believe that the Bible tells us what we need to know about this Jesus. And so what you need to see is that we really believe there's a red line here between the convictions. And what you're gonna hear as we go forward, and what you'll see on our website, the seven essentials, we're not saying you have to have all these things we're about to talk about hammered out before you can be a thief on the cross that is saved. What we're saying is, this is essential for you to understand if you're going to be healthy. There is a difference, if you will. Opinions would fall up here. We said last week, um, opinions are things like what's better, uh, pork or beef barbecue, right? Um, uh, 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 something like uh, when you ask yourself, what's better, um, Luke Bryan or George Strait? That's an essential. No, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. It's close, but it's not, right? It's still an opinion. I hate to even say it's a question, right? But, but there are certain things that are out here, and, and I want to make a couple of quick comments, all right? What we did say last week to bring great clarity about the difference between what will put you into the kingdom of heaven and what will allow you to be a, a, a healthy, abiding believer is this one particular statement. Convictions, okay, separate from the essentials of what makes you a believer, convictions are the beliefs that separate denominations and impact the health and vitality of a church. We are charged by God to care deeply about the health and vitality of each of you. And that's why we're doing this series. Because we're not called to go and make converts before you meet your ultimate judgment like the thief on the cross. Jesus says make disciples. And you want to make sure that the church, as the pillar and support of truth, teaches things that ought to be um, held absolutely as true. Conviction. When you talk about a convict, a convict is somebody, literally the etymology of the word means that they have been proven guilty, that facts establish that that person is this, and they are called a convict. What we're calling now, going forward, the seven essentials are things that we believe the scripture and the word of God has proven are absolutely true. And that is why the seven essentials series is different than the essentials of what it takes for somebody to be saved. It's what you need. It's what you need to be a healthy, joyful, equipped, useful, fruitful Christ follower. Okay? Now, now last week, Okay, last week we, um, we said that what happens is that what the liberal church is going to do is it's going to pull um, the, the, the essential convictions of the faith and make them questions or opinions. And we don't want to be uh, a church that produces individuals that play with uh, deep truths. So we're doing this series. What fundamentalists will do though is they will always drag down uh, things you should talk about and say, hey, anybody in this church that doesn't like country music, you can't be a member of our church. That would be crazy. Although, no, that would be crazy. Okay? Um, we want to make sure that we talk about what's it mean for us to go, we feel really good about you uh, creating disciples. I will personally, sometimes people ask me, Todd, who do you partner with? I always say it this way. I will lift up, if we go back to the, 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 the chart with... Um, 
the bold line under essentials and convictions. I will lift up the name of Jesus with anybody who agrees to the things that Paul talks about in Romans 10, that Peter talked about in Acts 2. I won't feel really good about you leading others to follow Jesus unless you hold to these essential convictions that we're about to walk our way through. What are those seven and the implications and derivatives of them? Here they are. Um, those seven include the Bible, a right understanding of the Trinity, which is a word that is used to describe how the Bible reveals the person of God, a, a thorough and biblical understanding of Jesus Christ, which is uh, obviously very core to the way we used it last week, the role of the Holy Spirit, the use of his gifts, and, and uh, staying away from the abuses of, of what it means today to uh, have a relationship with God and the Holy Spirit, man, um, who he is and his depravity and how God deals with him. And not only that, but also the distinctiveness between man or male and female, which is underneath the subset man, and uh, how there is no gender fluidity. That is core to being a healthy, joyful individual. Salvation, how it comes, and we're gonna talk about justification by grace through faith, and then also maybe not all the details of um, how it's gonna work out at the end times, but, but the fact that Jesus, who is alive, is going to return and is going to reign. And so we're gonna talk about these things, and today we're gonna to focus on this one. And the reason we're starting on the Bible is because it is what will help us with all of the other ones that we're going to talk about. The Bible is where we go to learn about who God is and to see what he has done. The Bible is God's story anchored in the context of history where God has revealed to us what he has been doing in the context of history. It's not just a bunch of loose ideas and philosophies. It is a record of God interacting with rescuing and redeeming humanity in the world that we live in. And so here's how we word this essential. And um, it flashed up a second ago, but I wanna say this to you again. Essential convictions, and this is why we teach here and in your smaller communities every week. Essential convictions make for a healthy, joyful, equipped, useful, fruitful Christ follower. And a church, okay, of individual Christians who um, are healthy and joyful and equipped and useful and fruitful is what eventually makes a healthy church. So we are called to equip the saints. We're called to make sure that you know what the gospel is once and for all delivered to the saints. And then we are called to give you some essential convictions that you hold to be true, and I'm gonna show you that all through scripture today. It's not up to us to um, take God's word and to thrust upon it what we think it means. I uh, had a chance when I was in Australia to do what I do every week when I'm on mission here in the Dallas, Texas, uh, Fort Worth, Plano, Frisco area. And that is, I, I engage folks with conversations about things that matter and the most important thing in the world and the most beautiful thing I've ever come to understand, which is the love of God revealed to me through Jesus Christ. So I was actually in Sydney on my way down to Adelaide and over to Melbourne and other places that my wife and I had a chance to go together and, and I had a chance to teach and minister uh, with her and others that we interacted with. And I'm riding in a 
car with my Uber driver who's taking me from my hotel to the Sydney airport. And we start to talk about different things. It turns out um, this individual was from Turkey and he um, had a, a background within Islam. And so we began to talk about things that we both held as important and dear. We had a love for the prophets. We had a love for God. And we had a love for uh, his word. But it divided very quickly there about what the word that we should trust in is and specifically who Jesus was. And so we started talking about Isa, and we started talking about God's word. And he said this to me, he goes, the problem I've got with the Bible is that uh, it, people think it means all kinds of different things. And I said, you know, I thought to myself, well, do I kind of go with the Sunni Shiite thing because people think the Quran and uh, the right understanding of Islam means different things? I just said this. I go, well, that shouldn't be a problem to you. The fact that different men read the same book and come up with different understandings. That doesn't mean the Bible's not true. And I go, for instance, I go, I don't think you're driving fast enough. And he goes, oh, you don't know much about Australia. I learned this about Australia. It is one of the most militant trafficked, uh, or if you will, one of the most militant uh, uh, places where cops will, will pull you over if there's any variance. I talked to at least five different people who got tickets for, for doing one or two miles per hour over the speed limit. And you only get four of those tickets a year and you'll lose your license. And so they are very careful to travel the right speed. But I told this guy, I go, you're not driving fast enough. And he says, what do you mean? I go, you're supposed to be doing a 60. Look at the sign. And there was a sign that popped up right there in front of us that I saw like this. This is what a speed limit sign looks like in Australia. And I said to him, let's go, let's go 60. And he looked down and he goes, I am doing, I'm doing 59. I'm doing, I'm doing 60. I go, no, 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 you're supposed to go 60 miles an hour. Let's pick it up. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. He goes, this, this is a, a, a 60K. I go, it's 60 MPH. I go, I'm a driver. I know what a speed limit is. He goes, no, 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 no. Over here, we do Ks, not MPH. I go, I'm telling you that's 60 MPH. And he goes, no, it's 60 Ks. And, um, and eventually he got, started to get frustrated with me. And I said, well, let me just stop. I go, can I just tell you something? I know you happen to be right. Okay, I know that it's 60 Ks that you're supposed to do in Australia, but do you know why you're right? You're right not because we both looked at the same sign and what we shouldn't have done because I read the sign differently than you that the sign is not relevant. No, the reason that that sign is 60 Ks is because not because we're in Australia as opposed to the United States, but because the authority that put that sign up told us what it must mean. You are right because you agreed with the meaning of the sign. That sign meant, according to the authority that gave it to us, 60 Ks. Now you put that same sign in the States and the authority says it means this. The problem that uh, you need not make here is that Speed limits, I mean, MPH or Ks don't change when you go around uh, the spiritual world. Whether you're in Australia, America, or Turkey, there are certain truths that are true everywhere. And just because one man wants to make a case doesn't mean it's not MPH. You have to ask yourself when you read the text, what did the authority mean? In fact, one of the worst questions you can ask yourself when you read the Bible um, is what's this mean to me? That's not the way you're supposed to read your Bible. You don't want to read your Bible and go, what's this mean to me? What you want to do when you read your Bible is say, what did the author mean when he wrote it? What was his intention with those that he wrote it to? And when you find out what the intention was applied to that culture 
you can then go, okay, now I'm going to take that intention and I'm going to apply it to my culture. But the timeless principle and truth never changes across culture. If you will, just to use the speed limit scenario, in both places, the states in America, whether you use K's or MPH, it's that you should be regulated in the way you drive at this level. And there is regulation that goes across time. So when you read your Bible, you don't want to ask yourself, uh, what's it mean to me? Because that 60 to me meant MPH as an American. But I could tell you, uh, if I drove 60 miles per hour in a 60 kilometer zone, the authority there wasn't going to care much what I thought it meant. The question is, what does the authority mean? And God is the authority over all cultures. We have one God over Turkey, Australia, and America. And it's my job to align myself with it. And so when you start to think about where you are shepherded, when you start to think about what you believe, it is imperative that you get yourself around folks who know the authority or who can teach you how to understand meaning. It's why uh, one of my favorite things I ever did when we taught through 2 Peter, because 2 Peter is all about this, is I put this little uh, sign up right here because this sign is consistent all throughout scriptures, okay? And it's a sign that I'm gonna hang up again, you know, as I teach today. And this is the divine physician's general warning, right? Taken right off a cigarette pack. You smoke these, you might die. And our surgeon general wants you to know that. I'm telling you that God wants you to know that it's very important who your shepherd is. And you've got to be discerning when you listen to what essential convictions are for you to be a healthy, joyful, adequate, equipped Christ follower so you can be fruitful for your king. Because when you start to mess with some of these things, you're going to find out it might mean that you don't know who Jesus is, really. You call him Lord, and yet you go your own way. But this is a fact, all right? Uh, ingesting false teaching or pulling out truth that wasn't meant in the text complicates your life, possibly eternally. So you got to examine the scriptures to see if the things that you're hearing or observing or taking out there for your own application are so. This is what we mean when we say it's essential you believe this about the Bible. We, uh, in a, a pithy way, say it this way. The Bible is our authority. It is our conscience. It is our guide. And we stand firm where it's firm. And we are flexible where it's flexible. That essential conviction is something that we're saying every single Believer in this church, to be a member of this church, you must hold to. Now, look, um, in an expanded way, you want to go look at how we articulate this and we try and figure out other communities of faith that we partner with. We say it this way. We believe the Bible to be the verbally inspired word of God. Um, it's interesting. We didn't put the word plenary in there, but it's, in, it's implied. So when you talk about the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture, kind of a mouthful, verbal means every single word. God intended every single word to be in the text and those words have meaning. And the word plenary, like when you go to a conference and you go to the plenary session, that means everybody's there. It's not a breakout section. If you're at the conference, you're part of the plenary section. So what we're saying is every word, every single word, all of them together, the meanings of those words are inspired. It doesn't mean that Paul saw a sunset 
and wrote the book of Romans. It means specifically that God intended to bring forth what we have as the word of God. And it is without error in its original writings. Okay? Which is to say the autographs, the original effort of scripture that God superintended for fallible man to bring forward uh, with perfect truth. He did that. And I'm not going to go here into what I call textual criticism or um, why we know we've got a reliable and highly accurate copy of the original writings that are here. But uh, scholars would tell you that our text is pure uh, to, to almost the hundredth percent and that there's not a single matter of doctrine that is unclear. A lot of the textual errors that we have, in other words, as the Bibles come forward, is uh, on word order, does it say uh, our Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ our Lord? Or if a bunch of guys were copying the same original autograph and, and somebody wrote down um, one number and another guy wrote down another number, we're not maybe sure what number was there first, but we're sure that that number doesn't affect our salvation or any ultimate core doctrine of the church. It is the supreme and final authority in doctrine and practice. You cannot be, I'm gonna go back to this statement, I'm gonna say it again and again. This is why it's seven essential. Essential convictions make for a healthy, joyful, equipped, useful, fruitful Christ follower. And that's what we want for you. I don't want you to come to Watermark. I want you to be a part of Jesus' church and I want you to be a joyful believer. I, I, I was talking with my uh, friends who helped lead with me here recently and, and, and just to go back one more time to the original graph and the different arches that are right here, if you think about what the word essential means in this chart, what we're saying is that's what makes you have the DNA of a sheep. This is what allows you to be part of the flock of God. What we're gonna say though, essential convictions are, which is what the series, the seven essentials are, that's what you need if you're going to be a healthy sheep, uh, a breeding sheep that brings forward um, other healthy believers, a sheep that's gonna to move towards becoming a sheepherd, <laughs> eventually a shepherd of other people, okay? The DNA is repent and believe. The DNA is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. But if you want to be useful, faithful, and joyful, you better learn the text. So I want to read this little deal to you. There's a guy named A.W. Tozier who wrote on um, the importance of being somewhere where the word of God is taught correctly, where the meaning that the authority intended is what's pulled out, and you take your authority from the text, and you don't find what you want to believe in the text. He says this, our most pressing obligation today is to do all in our power to obtain a revival that will result in a reformed, revitalized, purified church. That's what we're doing here. We are reforming ourselves day after day, not being conformed, if you will. I should say that again, forgive me. We are being reformed, to use biblical words, we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can live our lives in the good and acceptable way to the human condition that God intends for us because he's a good shepherd. And so he says that, that this purified church, to have a purified church is of far greater importance than that we have 
that we have better Christians than that we have more of them. Each generation of Christians, and this is true, is the seed of the next. And degenerate seed is sure to produce a degenerate harvest, not a little better than, but a little worse than the seed from which it sprang. And so what we have an absolute commitment to do and an obligation to do is to make sure that we are exhorting you towards a right understanding of the word of God and a right application of it to your life. Um, Tozer says this in another spot, and, and it's a beautiful statement. He says, you don't read your Bible. Uh, well, I, actually, I take that back. That was something um, that, that, that I would say. You don't read your Bible as an intellectual exercise, okay? So that you might know facts about God. No, you read your Bible so that you know one thing, and that one thing is true, and that thing is that you should do these things not so that you can be called good by God, but because you know that God is good and you don't want to miss out on any of the blessing that he has for you. But when you read your Bible, okay, you want to make sure that you read it in a way that you're going to show yourself approved as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, somebody who accurately handles the word of truth. L listen to what uh, this, this gentleman said before. He said, the scholar, which is what we all want to be, individuals that, that rightly divide the word of truth, has a vitally important task to perform. And this is my job when I teach every week. My job is to make sure that, that I guarantee the purity of the text. I get as close to possible as the word as it was originally giving, so that I might compare scripture with scripture until I've discovered the true meaning of what the author intended. But right there is where my authority ends. Tozer says, the teacher, the scholar, must never sit in judgment upon what is written. He dare not bring the meaning of the word before the bar of his reason. He dare not condemn or commend the word as reasonable or unreasonable, scientific or unscientific. After the meaning is discovered, what does the authority mean? That meaning judges him, never does he judge it. It's why I tell people all the time, if you read your Bible and uh, you accept some parts of the Bible and reject other parts of the Bible, it's not the Bible that you believe in, it's yourself. And so you don't want to be somebody who, who um, gives lip service. You don't want to be a Bible-believing heretic. Somebody who, who's a follower of a non-biblical Jesus. This is what is happening all around the world today. You have a liberal church that doesn't hold to essential convictions. And therefore, the church has lost its influence. And by the way, man, I would tell you this. Um, Spurgeon observed this almost 200 years ago. He said, the world is always at peace with a lukewarm church. And such a church is always pleased with itself. Because people are going, oh, you're acceptable to me. You, what you say isn't, isn't too hard for me. You know, I, I, can, I can hang out with you. I think you're a more loving um, church than some of those other people who say that this is what God means. Spurgeon also said this. He said, if you want to save men's souls, you must tell them a great deal of disagreeable truth. Peter did that. He said, repent. You're not here to judge the word of God. The word of God judges you. Your job is when you read the word of God is to pull out the meaning of what the text says, not try and find an excuse to believe what you want in it. And I'm gonna tell you, not only is it true that if you wanna save men's souls, you must tell them a great deal of disagreeable truth, 
I, even with my pastor friends, say a lot of disagreeable things to them because they need to hold to essential convictions that the church is increasingly not holding to. And may that never be the case here. The Bible says all scripture is inspired by God. There's that verbal plenary inspiration. Every single word is given to us in totality from God, not so that we can play with it, but so that it can teach us what is right, if you will, reprove us what ain't right, correct us, tell us how to make it right so that we might be trained in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16, and then it goes on to verse 17, that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. What we're saying as we start this series, the seven today in earnest, is that the most essential conviction that you can have, because it's where God has revealed himself, is that the word of God is the verbally inspired word of God and it's without error in its original writings. And it is the supreme and final authority in all doctrine and practice. And you're gonna stand firm where it's firm and be flexible where it is flexible. It's what we must do, it's what we try and do. Let me just um, share with you a couple of scriptures why this is such a big deal to us. Acts chapter 20, um, it's the very, uh, first time. It's the only time in the book of Acts. I mentioned this when we studied the book of Acts. You might have been here with us the two years we did that. But uh, when we were studying the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, I said, this is the only place in the whole book of Acts that the body of Christ is addressed. Everything else is an evangelistic message. Or it's a testimony about somebody being evangelized. But right here in the book of Acts, the church is being addressed. And this is what Paul says. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, scholars, who are to make sure that the meaning is held onto. And you should shepherd the church of God. You should make sure that these sheep that really have the essentials of who Jesus is are healthy and led by green, green pastures and still water so they can grow and be joyful because Jesus purchased them with his own blood and he loves them. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in upon you and they won't hold to essential convictions. They'll make essential convictions, opinions and question them. And they'll redefine man and they'll redefine woman and they'll redefine marriage and they'll redefine um, uh, the Lordship of Jesus Christ and they'll redefine what the true works of the spirit are. And he says, you gotta watch. Because these guys won't spare the flock. They're only going to want to do things that the world will celebrate and take as easy. He says, even from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering, Paul said my example, that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Folks, I can't overstate the importance of your loving this book. I, I have never seen a, a single mature, useful, healthy, thriving, joyful Christian that was not a student of God's word. I was talking to a guy this week, uh, one of the more 
um, I think, appropriately celebrated Christian leaders in our country. And God increasingly is using them around the world. We were on the phone actually yesterday. And as we were talking, he, he just said, I, I don't know what I would do without God's word. I, I don't know if, if, if God's word was not accessible to me, if it wasn't in my language. I don't, I'd tell my wife, honey, we need to sell our house to buy a copy. I mean, can we not eat for a couple of days? Because I don't know what he said I would do without the word of God. Let me ask you a question. Is that your attitude? Do you really see it as your authority, your conscience, and your guide? Is it the supreme and final authority in your life for all understanding and practice? And if not, if not, then you will not be a healthy, joyful, equipped, useful, fruitful Christ follower. And if there's enough of those folks here who aren't doing that, we will not be a healthy church. And so these seven essential convictions cannot be toyed with. And we in good conscience can't tell you to go and be shepherded at places that don't hold to these. And in fact, what I'm going to tell you is if you go to places where these things are trifled with, you're going to ingest false teaching and it's complicate your life and possibly even eternally. Paul said, make sure that you shepherd well the flock of God among you. Make sure that you pull out the meaning from the text. And it's meaningful in your life. When Peter was writing at 2 Peter chapter 1, um, he starts, he says, I'm a bondservant. I'm, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And I want to be a good under shepherd to Jesus, the supreme shepherd. And he goes down. He said, I'm going to try and multiply verse 2, grace and peace in your life. And then he tells basically um, um, that, that, that you've been given everything for, for life and godliness. His divine power has been given to you everything that you need to experience life and godliness there in verse three. And he goes through then and he says, I want you to give attention to certain things. And it includes a growing in knowledge and growing in understanding of what the scripture says. And here's why. Look in verse eight. He says, because if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they're going to render you neither useless nor unfruitful. If you don't have a right knowledge of God, in other words, if you look at this book and go, I think it means this, without being careful to go, no, this is the meaning that's there and it judges me, I don't judge it. In Australia, you lose your license. Here, you'll use your life. You'll lose your life. Possibly eternally. Not because you had it, and then you lost it, but because you never had it and the fact that you never put yourself subject to the one that you said was Lord and the word that he said you should trust because this is what the Bible says in John chapter 17, verse 17. Oh God, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said there's not a single jot or tittle, which are the two smallest marks that you can make in Hebrew uh, to, to change the different uh, letters that make up the words that all are intended for you. Jesus says, if you move a dot or a dash that changes the meaning, you have perverted the text. And there's not a single jot or tittle that's going to be affected before the end of time. It's going to be fulfilled and never abolished. We would do well to pay attention to it. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. 
We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. This is what shepherds do. It's why it's essential that we teach the word of God. You read it. You ingest it. You, you read it through. You pray it in. You live it out. And then you pass it on. We proclaim Jesus. We admonish every man and we teach every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man complete in Christ. Can I tell you again why I'm so passionate about this? Here is the overriding truth I want you to get from today. Essential convictions, which is a right understanding of the word of God. Essential convictions make for a healthy, joyful, equipped, useful, fruitful Christ follower. And so we care deeply about your understanding these things. In a church of Christ followers, with essential convictions, make for a healthy church. And a healthy church is a source of grace to the world that Jesus intends that we should enjoy with him. We are warned by Peter again in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this, that some of what Paul wrote is hard to get the meaning and to know what he, he means in there. And in verse 16, he says, Paul, as in all his letters, speaking to them of different things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. So that's why Paul said that when you teach, you should pay close attention to yourself and your teachings. In 1 Timothy chapter 4. Because by doing so, you will ensure salvation both, both of yourself and those who believe. Let me just close with this. Um, this idea that we are called to teach the word of God and, and to not be shy about holding to the word of God because you know sometimes people go, do you, do you really hold to that? I mean, isn't that, that's kind of offensive to other people. I go, listen, I am a servant of Christ and a steward of the mystery of God. It is not up to me what is true and what is not. I don't get to pick my speed limit. I don't get to say I'm an American when I'm in Australia. And you don't get to say uh, that you're anything other than a child of God wherever you are. All men are going to be judged by that authority. And so you would do well to put yourself underneath it. And when you speak to men, it's, it's not going to go well with you always because the world doesn't like those who, uh, who will speak truth against it. I've said this, that the world suppresses truth and unrighteousness. It doesn't want to know there's a God that they're accountable to. It doesn't want somebody who tells them what's right and what's wrong. And they don't like when folks remind them of that as servants of the one who has said there's a right and there's a wrong. But you need to know this. The reason that God has told us there's a right and a wrong is because he wants it to go right with you. He wants you to live in a way that is good and acceptable and perfect to the human condition. But I'm going to warn you that if you seek to be God's man and God's servant, as you must be if you are going to be um, faithful to Christ, is that it's not going to be a popular thing, and increasingly so in our world. Uh, um, I love what George Orwell said a long time ago. If you know who George Orwell is, he's not exactly a contemporary. He said, the more society drifts from truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. I've said this, that truth sounds like hate to those who hate the truth. Orwell also said this, we have now sunk to a depth at which time um, the restatement of what is obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. 
And it's amazing the things that we're going to have to state the obvious about going forward, that all life matters, that there is a distinction between male and female. And I could go on. And it's our job to be ruthless with truth, but to be patient with people. This book tells us when we speak to do it with gentleness and reverence to other people. And there was a, um, a lot of wisdom last week in talking about how we, we, we live with humility and we wisely interact with our culture. But just be clear about this. The reason that the church has so little influence on our culture is because the culture has had so much influence on the church. The church has started to say, well, what will culture accept about what we teach in this book? And that's not what you do. This is what's true of a person who holds to the essential truth of the word of God. In Ezekiel chapter three, God is talking to his prophet. And he says to Ezekiel this, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and then go and speak it. I am begging you to eat this scroll. I'm begging you to, to, to see it as uh, for what it is. It's the word of God, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. And he told Ezekiel to eat it. And he says, so I opened my mouth, Ezekiel said, and, and he fed me this scroll. And you can do that every day with Bible study. You can go, I think this is what the text means. Do you agree? Let's look at this together. Let's talk to older brothers and sisters and let's see if this is what God wants us to understand from this. He says in verse three, son of man, feed your stomach, fill your body with the scroll, which I am giving you. And I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Verse four, he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them, for you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to your own people. You're being sent to other English-speaking folks in the world today. Now watch this. Yet, he says in verse 7, the people that you go speak to who know your language will not be willing to listen to you since they're not really willing to listen to me. If you go speak the word of God, don't be surprised that a lot of folks aren't going to like it. Why? Because they don't like what God has to say. And he says, surely, this is Ezekiel's world, surely Israel is a stubborn and obstinate people. You're going to run into stubborn and obstinate Americans. And believe me, they're in Turkey and Australia as well. Behold, though, if you are essentially a useful and healthy sheep, you're going to be like Ezekiel. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their forehead. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them because they're a rebellious house. Listen to me, son of man. Take into your heart all my words, which I will speak to you and listen carefully. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the Lord God. That's our great task and privilege this week. But we don't just tell them that's what the word of God says. We show them this is the word of God embodied as I yield to the spirit, as I follow my Lord and King Jesus Christ, because I am his sheep and he is my shepherd. Church, it is an essential conviction here in any place where you are an individual who wants to be a healthy, joyful, equipped, useful, fruitful Christ follower that you give your life to this book and you pull the meaning from it out and you walk in it. Let's go church. Father, I pray 
that we would be a people of the book, that we would be humble and kind, that we would teach, reprove, correct, and exhort in season and out of season. I pray that we would pay close attention to ourselves and our teaching, and I pray that as a result of that, Lord, that we would be useful to your people. Lord, I pray that we would be as stiff-necked, committed to your kindness as the world is stiff-necked, hard-hearted, committed to rebellion, that we would persevere in these things, that we would not grow weary in doing good, that we'd be prophets of our age to our Israel, that grace may come to our age and our Israel the way it came through Ezekiel to your people then. So Lord, let us eat the honey, the nectar of heaven, the word of God. May it transform us. May your goodness and perfection and will be seen in us that the world may ask us to give an account for the hope that is within us. And may we do it with gentleness and reverence. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.